Okay, so let's pick up Sukkot from the Tabernacle to Bethlehem, part two. I've said this before, I want to kind of restate it. This is perhaps the most joyous Holy Week given to us by God. All of heaven rejoiced when he was born in Bethlehem. There was a mighty throng of angels that were just blown their shofars and singing and looking into that birth event. All of heaven. The king had finally come, born as a babe in Bethlehem. So this week is a very important week for us. This week, the Apostle John, as we've already stated, he casts the birth of Messiah in the language and symbol of this week. The language and symbol of Sukkot is what John describes the birth of Jesus. John says in, in his, his uh, first chapter in verse 14 that the word of God, the Mashiach, Jesus, he came and he pitched a human tent and dwelt among us. He became a human being. That was his sukkah. Yeah, we have this sukkah, it's a symbol, right? God would dwell in his tabernacle. And then he came and dwelt in our sukkahs, our little tabernacle. He tabernacled with our ancients in the wilderness. He says, but I'm going to come and I'm going to draw closer than ever before. And he surprised us as he came in and through his son in that birth. So that Jesus, his body, John described as a living sukkah. And God's dwelling presence dwelt in him. It says the fullness of God dwelt in him bodily. Of the trillions and trillions of cells in Jesus' physical body, God's presence was in each and every one of them. He was filled. He's the fullness of God in bodily form. This is who he is. And that's the fulfillment, the initial fulfillment of Sukkot. He is Emmanuel. God dwelling with us. So, let's step back and let's see how this is fulfilled. I want to pick up Matthew chapter 2 and kind of build on what we were talking about in the first part of this series. If you haven't heard the first part, you can download that and get that. Uh, that is on our website and our YouTube station. Okay, so Matthew chapter 2. It says, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. This is an amazing text. Who were these Magi, right? These were the academic shakers and movers of the east and the east the east normally most of the time in the bible is a reference to babylon so these were the kings if you will they were giants they were wealthy they were the power brokers probably from persia which had overtaken babylon and they see his star and they make a journey, an entourage, with all of their gifts to come and worship the king of Israel. And they knew about his birth because they came from Babylon, where Daniel 
was head over all of the wise men. If you remember the story of Daniel, right? Chapter 2. He gets raised up in Babylon, becomes the second greatest, most powerful person in Babylon. He's over all of the king's wise men. What do you think he was teaching? He's teaching Torah. In fact, he's the one that gives the timeline of the arrival of the Messiah. We call it Daniel's timeline. These men knew of that. They understood that. They saw his star, and they knew the timing. So they made their journey to Bethlehem to see this king of the Jews that Daniel said would be the king of kings and lord of lords. So they came. And they responded by giving him gifts. Very, very valuable gifts as they bowed and worshipped him. Matthew chapter 2, 3 through 5. When Herod the king heard of this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Verse 6. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Why didn't everyone come to celebrate his birth? Why wasn't there a throng of Torah teachers at his birth? Where was everyone? The angels of heaven were there. Heaven showed up and a few others on earth. So why is it that no one came? Have you ever thought about that? You know, it's interesting to note that throughout the Tanakh, God purposely, purposely obscures much concerning his son and his arrival. He did that from the beginning because the serpent and his seed, well, they sought a plan to destroy him. And they didn't know when he was coming. In fact, they thought the next offspring of Eve was, in fact, the Messiah. And from that point on, they're constantly up to no good when it comes to trying to destroy the Messiah. Even Pharaoh, in his deception, being deceived by the serpent, is what? Killing the male children of the Hebrews. That's the serpent inflaming a, 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 an empire to turn against the people of God, hoping in the slaughter, the genocide of the male children, that the Messiah will be snuffed out. And so God on purpose obscures much about his son so that the spirit realm can't sort out and figure out what actually is taking place. And that's why even the Torah scholars, who knew the Torah inside and out, couldn't figure out when Jesus and where Jesus would be born. They had some general ideas, but much that had been given was spread out over a long period of time, like a puzzle, a piece here and a piece there, all throughout the Tanakh. And so to put all those pieces together was no easy task. Like, like uh, Elder Randy was saying, 
we have the advantage of looking back and seeing the picture. But moving forward, seeing a piece here and a piece there, you can't quite sort out what that's all about. And that's what had taken place. This issue of the quote about him being born in Bethlehem of the land of Judah, that's just one of the pieces of the puzzle. Doesn't tell us a whole lot. Let me give you some other pieces related to this one. In Genesis 49.10, there's a prophecy given by Jacob, or I believe this is by Moses, um, might be by Jacob, but anyway, it says, the scepter, speaking of the tribe of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. It's a very ancient prophecy. And the prophecy says, basically, the Mashiach will come out of the tribe of Judah. Of the 12 tribes, Messiah will arise out of Judah. Numbers 24, 17, the false prophet Balaam gives a true prophecy. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Again, a messianic prophecy prophesying that the star, the Messiah, will come forth from Jacob, and he will rule and reign from Israel. This star that's referred to, the star of Jacob, transitions and finds some of its fullness in King David, from the line of the tribe of Judah, right? King David. And so all of a sudden, this shift in language goes from the star of Jacob to the star of David. And now this whole idea of the glory of Messiah being seen in the forerunner of King David comes to life. So we talk about the star of David, right? Well, that star of David becomes the bright and morning star of Jesus the Messiah. Notice the stars that are involved in these passages, right? You got the star out of Jacob. You get the star of David. You get the star of Messiah. Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Amen. Star of Jacob transitions. Star of David transitions. Star of Jesus. And this is what the three kings saw. They saw his star. And so they made their way to see this king and his glory. All of the power of the kingdom, all authority. If you go to Daniel, there's five kingdoms. The fourth is Rome. And after Rome comes the kingdom of heaven, not made with human hands. And the one who leads that kingdom is a leader who becomes king of kings and lord of lords. And his kingdom never ends. It increases, increases, increases. It's a never-ending kingdom kingdom and it comes in the midst of the fourth kingdom the kingdom of rome which jesus was born right during those those early emperors of rome and they saw that and they came to witness that verse 7 back to our text matthew chapter 2 then herod secretly called the magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared 
And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. That's right, huh? Yeah. I think Herod kind of represents liberal and godless government leaders who tend to lie when it comes to big truth events. They're afraid of the truth. They're intimidated by the truth. They always undermine the truth. And Herod, he's a liar. He wants to kill him. Why would Herod want to kill him, right? Because people that have great power and wealth, they want to control others and preserve their power base. We should always be wary of them. Matthew 2, 9 through 11. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. I just love that passage. These noble, powerful men humbling themselves to this, to this babe in a manger, right? And they, 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 they fall before him and they worship him. Now, now whether it was actually in the stable, you know, right after his birth or months later, you know, it doesn't matter. The point is, he's an infant. He's an infant, humble in form, a baby in diapers, if you will. And that's who they fall before and worship because they saw in him the prophecy of Daniel coming to pass that this is the king who lives forever. His kingdom never ends. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And they pay tribute, homage, and worship to God's son. This is why his birth is such a celebration. I got my sukkah. I love my sukkah at home, right? All week long, I'm celebrating the birth of Jesus as the initial fulfillment of Sukkot. All week long, I play birth music. You know, those that are around me during the week, they finally get tired and they're like, man, I don't want to hear no more. I'm, you know, can you play something else? I say, sure I can. Come back next week. But this week, I am celebrating the birth. This is what we're called to do. He's the glorious king of heaven. Yeah, what a great time this is. Some say, well, isn't that idolatry? That people would bow and worship Jesus? Well, if you think of Jesus as only a human being, that would be true. But he's more than that. Jesus. Don't, don't be confused with his human nature, his sukkah that he came and dwelt among us in. Don't let that confuse you. He was in the beginning with God. He was with God. And he is God. And God became flesh and dwelt among us. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of God 
God the Father. He is Emmanuel, God with us. To worship him is to worship the living God. Jesus later says in John chapter 10, during Hanukkah, just, it'll come soon enough. Stay focused on the birth, right? But it's there that Jesus says, I and the Father are one, in essence, one. Okay, let me go back to the text here. The king's here. It says, then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. I want us to step into that birth event for a moment. Think about who's there. Because who's there and how they got there tells us a little bit about revelation, about inspiration, illumination. So Mary's there, obviously. She's the one that gave birth. But how did she even discover this plan of God? An angel from heaven. She, she, she didn't read that in the Torah. She didn't find that in the word of God. An angel came and spoke and revealed to her what was in the scriptures. And Mary chose to participate in that plan. Joseph's there. Why is Joseph there? He was going to divorce her quietly behind the scenes because she's pregnant during their betrothal period before the wedding. So he sought to put her away quietly. He loved her. He did not want to shame her. So behind the scenes, he was going to end the relationship because obviously she had slept with another man. She said, it's the Holy Spirit. What husband in his right mind is going to buy that story, right? That only works one time for Miriam, by the way, ladies. So, so she says, oh, it's the Holy Spirit. Joseph's really struggling with that. And yet Joseph's here. He doesn't divorce her. He's at the birth event. Why? Because he too encounters an angel from heaven that clues him in. He doesn't read it in the Torah. He doesn't find it in the Torah. It took a revelation from heaven to open his understanding to that which was obscured on purpose in the Tanakh. And then the prophet Simeon, he's there in the temple. It's the Holy Spirit that leads him to an encounter with Jesus during his circumcision, eight days after his birth. And then, of course, the prophetess, Anna. She's there in the temple day and night. She's a widow. She's in there day and night, serving and interceding in the temple. And the Holy Spirit reveals to her the babe and who he is. So if you look at this, it's amazing, right? The only ones that are there are those that were led by the Holy Spirit because the text wasn't enough. If you think you're going to study the Word of God and somehow garner knowledge and understanding, let me tell you something. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to understand the Word of God. The Word of God is spiritual, 
And you cannot understand it without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So when you study, it's always important to say, Holy Spirit, come. Open my eyes and my ears, my understanding. Give me a heart to receive. And you will. You'll receive illumination from the Holy Spirit so that the black letters on white pages make sense. When I pray every day, I, I pray the Lord's Prayer is my uh, initial time that I spend with God. But I love that. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. Right? Forgive us our trespasses if we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, it's interesting. In the prayer, it says, give us this day our daily bread. Do you think that's just talking about the food that we need? No, it's also talking about the bread of heaven, the revelation of who God is, his son, redemption, a way of life that brings blessing. Yeah, every time I pray, give us this day our daily bread, my heart leaps because I know that I'm going to see things in his word that day that I would never have seen without his help. Because I've asked, I know I'm going to receive, and I receive every time without exception. So, we have the shepherds that are there. Who are the shepherds? They are basically your lowest on the rung of blue-collar workers, so to speak. Okay, this is just really just kind of like basic work in, in, in the uh, Middle East at this time. So these shepherds, they're just out minding their own business, kind of, kind of the most humble of, of, of Israel, and yet God comes to them. Let, let's read about this. Luke chapter 2. In the same region... I'm starting in verse 8. In the same region where there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people for today in the city of David. What city is that? Bethlehem. Here in the city of Bethlehem, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Heaven is absolutely in a big celebration over the birth of Jesus on earth. And they're singing the high praises of God because they know that this is a Kairos moment, the birth event is the pinnacle of history itself. The great transition, right, from the law and the prophets to the era of Messiah. Yeah, the writer of Hebrew calls it the end of the ages. That's how powerful the shift was when he was born in Bethlehem. 
And if heaven's going to party, I'm going to party. See, every one of these festivals is about Jesus. They're memorials to him. They're celebrations. As Anthony Campolo used to say, the kingdom of God is a party. When you think about it, God has all these parties in honor of his son and what his son accomplished for the world, pointing us backward and also forward to give us a context for living in the here and now. Verse 15, when the angels had gone from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has uh, made known to us. Yeah, who made known to him? The Lord. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at these things, which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. You see, for both Mary and Joseph, they only got parts of the puzzle. They don't know the fullness of all that's going on. They're thinking, why are these kings here? What are they doing? They're worshiping our son. You know, I mean, this is like, what is going on? The shepherds come and talk about this celestial encounter in the fields, this light that shines on them. And then these shepherds are saying, this is what heaven said about the child. Yeah. Some are thinking, what have you guys been smoking? But Mary, it says, but Mary, Mary in contrast, yeah, she's pondering these things and she's putting them deep in her heart because she knows the significance of her son and she's growing into the fullness of the awareness of what all of that means. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Keep in mind that Torah alone was not enough to reveal the exact timing and place of Messiah's birth. These matters would be intentionally hidden and obscured by God, and it would take the Holy Spirit to then illuminate and reveal these things to those who are humble of heart, who seek the Lord, who are hungry and desire Him. Verse 13 goes on. This is the flight to Egypt. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Again, these encounters with heaven over and over and over. This is our legacy. This is who we are. We have the word of God and the spirit of God. We have the general word of God made real to us and specific in its application to our day that we're living in. So they tell, the, uh, the, the angel tells uh, them, get down, get to, to Egypt. Herod's going to destroy him if he gets a chance. So Joseph, verse 14 and 15, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left to Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophets. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Who is that prophet, by the way, that said that? Who's the prophet that said that? Out of Egypt, 
I called my son. Hosea. It's a quote from Hosea. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. You can turn there to the next quote. Yeah. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Who's Hosea referring to? No, he's not. He's referring to Israel. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Not when Jesus was a youth. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Isn't that amazing? What's he referring to? An earlier prophecy, all the way back in Moses' book of Exodus. Exodus 14, 21 through 23. It says, The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Verse 22 and 23. Then, the, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. This is the first, this is the law of first reference. This is the first time we have God calling Israel his son. He says, go and tell, go and tell Pharaoh this. Israel's my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he, may that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So Israel is cast by way of metaphor as the firstborn son of God. And this is where that prophecy finds its origins. And this is what Hosea is referring to. But that would have a greater fulfillment later on in Jesus. And this is what the author is going to refer to when it comes to Jesus coming back from Egypt back into the land. Jesus is the king of Israel. And thus he represents Israel. So it can be said of him when he comes back, Thus, out of Egypt, I have called my son, referring to Yeshua as the fullness of Israel. Herod then slaughters the babies. Verse 16, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under according to the time, with which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. The beast system hates God, hates his Messiah, hates his law, and hates his people. This is the way it's always been. This is the way it will continue. Let's take a look at the great red dragon and its earthly king in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 is a fascinating revelation. It's apocalyptic. It's, it's filled with uh, metaphors, figures of speech, symbols, types and shadows, and it's all relating to the birth of Jesus. Verse 1 and 2. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, 
And she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. This woman is clearly an allusion to Israel. Remember Joseph and his dreams about his brother and his mom and dad? Remember that? What was that understood as? What did his dad say about that, right? If you remember, remember in Genesis, his, mom, his dad says to Joseph, Joseph, are you saying that, that the sun and moon and the stars are going to bow and worship you? What do you mean by that? That me and your mom and your brothers are going to worship you? They connected the dots. See, we see Israel cast in this language of being a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. It's clearly an allusion to Israel as first described in the dreams of Joseph. 12 stars, 12 tri tribes of Israel. The sun and the moon referring to Jacob and Rachel. So Israel is represented or as represented in, uh, in this text. It's going to be pregnant with a child who is going to be the Messiah. And of course, the Jewish virgin Miriam is also uh, fulfilling that imagery that John gives us in the first two verses. She is a Jewish virgin, Miriam, right? Isaiah said, for unto us a child is born, and that child's going to be born of a virgin. And John puts that language in apocalyptic uh, astral language, saying basically the same thing. So let's look at the red dragon, three and four. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that she gave birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Again, this language is just filled with symbolism. The great red dragon is Satan, the serpent of old. He's present at the birth. He intends to murder the child. He has seven heads and ten hordes and seven diadems, referring to the civil powers of Rome itself. Herod's caught up in this. And he's going to use the Roman authorities and specifically Herod, to try to kill the child right after his birth. Verse 5, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This, of course, is a reference to the ascension of Jesus, who is caught up into the heavenlies, seated on the throne of God, anointed, coronated, as king of kings and lord of lords. Verse 6, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. Keep in mind, the context is what? The birth of Jesus. The timing of the war that takes place in heaven is the birth of Jesus. The dragon and his angels waged war. 
They were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. He deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with them. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, get to that in a moment. Keep in mind, this war that took place has a context. It's the season of Yeshua's birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So this loud voice in heaven says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Salvation has come. With the ascension of Jesus, salvation now has come. The kingdom of God has come. It's not coming. It's already here. There'll be a consummation of that, but it's already begun in the ascension. It says the kingdom of God has come. Christ is ruling and reigning now at the right hand of God. Satan has been cast down and is confined to this world. The war now is in this world, in our realm, and we're fighting it. Verses 11 and 12. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. The war is on. We're in a war. You cannot run and hide. You need to engage the enemy in battle. You need to be a warrior for God. We need, we need to cultivate some grit. What the world needs now, what the church needs now, is grit. People who believe in Jesus and will take a stand and not bow, not compromise, no matter what the world does. We're going to say no, no matter what the threat is. Take my life. Who cares? It's a promotion for me. The scariest person you'll ever have to fight is the person that's not afraid of dying and is committed to defeating you. That's your worst enemy. Now I want to tell you. You don't have any enemies like that. We're the ones to be feared. We're the ones who are not afraid. Because our lives are eternal. Because my life, because my life is eternal, I know that whatever God's called me to do, I can do that because my life never ends. Woe to the person that stands against me as I pursue what God has called me to do. And the same with you. That's why God's people are always the most to be feared once he releases them to do his job. Verse 13, And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Who's the woman? Israel. He persecutes Israel, who gave birth to the male child, Jesus, the Messiah. So the spirit of this world inflames civil powers 
to persecute God's people, Israel, and all who are identified with her. Believing Jews, believing Gentiles, we are the Israel of God. And this is where the enemy sets his sights through civil powers that are corrupt and immoral to come and try to rob us of our destinies, of our very lives. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a times and a times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured out water like a river from his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of its mouth. The war is fascinating. You can see through, through history how God has moved and rescued his people over and over and over. The drama is amazing. Life is so exciting. You know, there's so many twists and turns. And when you realize that God is watching over you and will give you what you need to persevere, man, it's just worth living. Verse 17, so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. A reference to the Gentiles who are grafted in who believe in Jesus and keep the commandments of God. Verse 12 of chapter 14, it says this, here's the perseverance of the saints. And the context is the mark of the beast when the beast system is at its great and highest strength where God even allows it to trample down the, his own people for a season, a short season. It's in the context of the great crisis that, that culminates in the end. It says, here's the perseverance of the saints. Here are those who make it through the fire of this crisis. Who are they? The ones who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. These are the mighty ones that make it through. These are the warriors of God. These are the men and women who believe and have some grit. This is who we are called to be. This is why we need to cultivate and foster grit. And we can't do that alone. We need each other, right? We need each other. I, I told the story before I'm going to tell it again. It, it's amazing what a little bit of encouragement does when you're just beaten down, right? So my daughter, she's up playing soccer. She's in high school. She's petite. She's running around, kicking the ball. And there's like this, I don't know who they were playing, some, some team from the Amazon. <laughs> I mean, some big women with hair, a lot of hair on their arms, you know. <laughs> And she's running stride by stride with this pretty big gal. And this gal just drives her to the ground and tramples over her. And she gets caught up in her legs. And so she's just running this big gal. And, and my daughter's like, you know, caught in her legs, getting, getting trampled. And then she just keeps going. And they, they you know, stop the, the, the game for a moment. And Shanda's just laying there. She's like lifeless. She's like lifeless on the field. And I'm standing over there on the sidelines and everyone's quiet because they're just looking. And I just scream out as loud as I can, get up, McClellan! You know? And she just kind of like pops up. She gets up, she starts running. So they started playing again, you know? She says, she, she tells me, she'll tell you too. Oh, I didn't hear him say anything, you know? 
I know she heard me. Her spirit heard me. She just needed a little encouragement. And I want to tell you, in the, in the days, the weeks, the months ahead, when we're getting beat down and trampled on, yeah, it's the voice of your brother or your sister Amen. that is saying, get up, you can do this. And that's why you're going to get up, because you find the encouragement of the flock, of the people that you're a part of. This is why I'm so opposed to these house churches that do their own little things, and they're kind of anti-coming together in a corporate you know, kind of setting. I'm thinking, man, what, what's going to happen to you? You know, you're going to be out there running by yourself. You can get trampled down. There's going to be no one there to encourage you. What are you thinking? You know, we develop grit when we're together helping each other through the crisis that we all face. Amen. Amen. All right. So I got to, I got to, I'm a little bit over. So let me just finish this. I know the teachers that are teaching your kids do. And I'm afraid of them. Okay. <laughs> so I want to encourage you to celebrate his birth like never before. This is the season that we celebrate his birth. It is counterculture. Your Christian friends will think you're nutcases, like you're missing you know, part of your brain or whatever. Well, you just remind them, I'm sorry. It's kind of a revelatory thing. You need some illumination is what you need. Because this is the season of his birth. And John... John indisputably gives the theological setting and framework of his birth as the tabernacle of festivals. So celebrate it like never before. Don't be ashamed. Have a blast. This is your week. Teach your children well, and they will be centered in Messiah. They'll be kept in Messiah because all of the holy days of God are designed to safeguard our faith in his son. So when we teach our children and engage their hearts in these holy days, it keeps them focused and centered in the Messiah. And that's important because this war goes on to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. So Hawksmayak, happy Sukkot and happy birthday, King Jesus, the babe who was born in Bethlehem. Shabbat Shalom.